from Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Today we'll be joined by a researcher whose journey into rewriting history all started with a small discovery. Then we'll talk to a scientist who has a startling warning about cryptocurrencies. The anthropological archaeologist and the quantitative ecologist. That's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Melissa Roberts, sitting in for Matthew LaPlante. Each week on this program, we bring together two researchers from different fields and invite them to tell us about their work. Then we introduce them to one another in hopes of building connections about their work and, hopefully, having an aha moment. Joining us today are two people who have already given the world plenty of moments like that. With us on the phone from Pullman, Washington, is Shannon Tushingham, whose recent article in the Proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences pushed back the date for the first use of tobacco in the Pacific Northwest nearly 1,000 years earlier than previously thought. She's an avid traveler and likes to hunt for treasures at yard sales, antique shops, and rural auctions. Shannon, welcome to Undisciplined. Thank you. Also with us today from the Institute of Marine Biology in Hawaii is Eric Franklin, whose recent study in Nature Climate Change suggests that cryptocurrencies could have a bigger impact on the environment than previously believed. When he's not studying the intersection between Bitcoin and CO2 emissions, he can be found hiking in the hillsides and surfing at the beach. Eric, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Alyssa. Happy to be here. First up today, the anthropological archaeologist. There is a difference between the sacred and the harmful. Between that which brings us together. And that which drives us apart. Honor tradition. Honor tradition. Honor tradition. That is a public service announcement from the Center for Health and Safety Culture at Montana State University, encouraging indigenous peoples of the Americas to honor tobacco in its sacred forms. Until recently, the long-held view about the history of tobacco in the Pacific Northwest was that the indigenous peoples of that area didn't smoke until traders brought it west around 1790. But in a recent study in the Proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences, Shannon Tushingham and her colleagues described a molecular analysis of pipes that were, in some cases, thousands of years old. That analysis showed that tobacco has been being used by indigenous people in the Pacific Northwest for at least 1,200 years, actually. Shannon Tushingham, this all began when you were excavating plank houses in Northern California. Can you talk about what you found and the questions you began to consider? My dissertation research was conducted in collaboration with Talawa community members in far northern California. One of the things I was looking at was the development of plank house villages, and so we were excavating houses. And in several of the houses, we found pipes or small fragments of pipes. And the question kind of came around, well, um, what were people smoking? And then after coming to Washington State, I started talking to Nez Perce people who live in this area, and we started to look at the same ideas about tobacco smoking in the interior Northwest. So to go about starting to answer those research questions that you were having, you had to get your hands on some of those pipes, right? Yes. And how did you end up doing that? These pipes that we looked at um, were part are part of legacy collections. They're um, archaeological artifacts that have been housed at the Washington State University Museum of Anthropology for 
between 40 and 50 years, and not much has been done with a lot of the artifacts. And now that we have these scientific tools that are developed, you know, we have now DNA, we can do, use GCMS, we can do, have all kinds of fancy tools and analyses. Um, we can start asking really interesting questions about people in the past. And we selected ones that dated to different time periods so we could kind of come up with this continuous record. We wanted to establish what people had been smoking, not just at one point in time, but over a long duration of time. And so this was sort of the point that things started to get interdisciplinary in your research. You started working with colleagues at the Institute for Biological Chemistry. Did you Mm -hmm. know these guys from previous collaborations? I don't. Actually, after coming up to Washington State, I applied for a National Science Foundation grant, and I just sort of started asking around here at Washington State, you know, who was interested in this sort of thing, and I found David Gang. It was totally lucky, but he was very interested in this, and he has this background in medicinal plants and plant metabolomics. So it was just this wonderful uh, collaboration that emerged after coming to Washington State. You guys did the testing on all of these pipes. Were you surprised by those results? We were because we were expecting to find what anthropologists in this area were saying was true, and that was that people on this this part of the Snake River in particular were not smoking tobacco before contact. They said that tobacco was an introduced plant. And, you know, when you get up into the Northwest, this is where things get kind of interesting because tobacco doesn't grow as well up here. It's it's uh, colder and, uh, you know, it's not the sort of deserty environment that a lot of tobaccos like. So, yeah, we were surprised. <laughs> Mm-hmm. The short answer. Well, it's sort of like, I mean, we'd mentioned before the conventional wisdom had been that tobacco traders from the 1790s brought it to that area. So so what these people were smoking wasn't tobacco like those people brought, but it was similar, I guess. There's actually quite a few species of tobacco. And the tobacco that we know today actually comes from a domesticated species. It's Nicotiana tobaccum. But in the western United States, where people were hunter-gatherers and fishers, people did not farm these species of tobacco. However, there were what we call indigenous, sometimes people call them wild or coyote tobaccos. They were used by hunter-gatherer peoples. And we know at contact they were used by peoples of California and the Great Basin. And there is sporadic mention at contact of people cultivating these indigenous species of tobacco in parts of the Northwest. They abandoned that after trade tobacco came in. You know, people really liked that strong tobacco, and it came in large bundles. And then I understand that you've collaborated with um, local tribe members to share some of these findings. And can you talk about what that experience has been like for you? It's been wonderful. It, It brings on a whole new level of meaning to the archaeological results. Um, I really love the fact that we're able to connect with Indigenous people and talk about what this means to people today. The fact is, is that tobacco has this really, really ancient history, uh, and it's a, it's a sacred plant to Native people, and, um, and it was in the past, and it continues to be used by many people in uh, traditional ways. The Nez Perce people that we were working with, Josiah Pinkham, Nakia Williamson, and others, they were interested in documenting 
traditional tobacco use and bringing some of that knowledge into their programs that are addressing tobacco abatement. What people in, you know, the National Institute of Health and, and other public health professionals are realizing that standard tobacco abatement programs, so, you know, the scare tactics of this is what's going to happen to you, tobacco is bad, you know, if you smoke tobacco and all this stuff, they, those programs don't necessarily resonate with American Indian and, and First Nations people because they have this very sacred ancient relationship with tobacco. And so they have programs like the Keep Tobacco Sacred program that are distinguishing between these ancient practices that, that are tied to these ancient practices and then the commercial sort of colonial use of tobacco, which is a much different sort of thing, you know, where tobacco companies have commercialized this plant, added many chemicals and, and packaged the material in, in a certain way. Health professionals are looking at these programs, and they're, and they're finding that for some Native people, it helps them to distinguish between traditional sacred tobacco and commercial tobacco, and it helps them quit smoking. So it's, it's part of this sort of getting back to, you know, this traditional place of tobacco in people's lives. So is this really, it's, it seems like it's sort of something that's been overlooked. And, you know, you guys found that there, there was sort of 1,200 years of missed understanding between, you know, this traditional use of tobacco and yeah. the more commercial use of tobacco. Mm-hmm. So you're sort of helping uncover that? I think we are amplifying something that people have been saying. And we're really trying to connect the archaeology to these programs that are happening within American Indian and First Nations uh, communities themselves. I mean, what we're doing with the pipes is new, but connecting it to these health programs is something that I'm, that's kind of new and I'm really excited about. That's Shannon Tushingham, whose recent study in the Proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences suggests that tobacco has been used and perhaps cultivated in the Pacific Northwest for at least 1,200 years. Shannon, can you stick around and chat with our next guest at the end of the show? I would love to. Great. Next up, the quantitative ecologist. That's Royce to Five Nine collaborating with fellow Detroit rapper Eminem on Not Alike in a remarkably family friendly segment of a song that is otherwise not suitable for public radio. And if you listen closely to that part of the song, you'll hear Royce drop a reference to Bitcoin, the world's most popular cryptocurrency. Bitcoin is also, however, a very power-hungry cryptocurrency. That's because it takes a whole lot of computers churning through a whole lot of computations, which requires a whole lot of electricity. How much? Well, that's what Eric Franklin and his team set out to find out. And the answers they generated are, well, they're honestly kind of frightening. Eric Franklin, before we get to how big of an effect Bitcoin has, can we talk about how you went about even trying to estimate how much energy it takes to create a Bitcoin and where that energy came from? Really, it was two pieces. The first was how much emissions are currently generated, and we used 2017 as our baseline year. And then we wanted to use that as a starting point to then try and project out what, uh, what emissions may be 
if Bitcoin was to replace all cashless transactions. We know how many Bitcoins are out there, how many blockchains have, have been solved, um, but there's no information that directly identifies where that occurs and what machines they're using. We looked at basically all of the data collected for these companies claiming a given block. And then we looked at the countries where this could occur, and we collected data on the type of fuel used for electri electricity generation in this country. And then we used these average standards um, and their linkages to, to how much CO2 equivalent emissions that they would generate for that particular type of fuel. And from that, we're able to estimate a total carbon emission equivalent. So that gave us an estimate of how much emissions are generated for that 2017 year. And at least our findings were that they were, they were about double from some of the other estimates that we had seen. The second component was projecting these into the future, and this is sort of the what-if scenario. It's a little bit different than I think what people think about uh, with Bitcoin traditionally, which is you're trying to mine coins, you're generating the, the value that comes out of the mining and the transactions from that, that activity. But we were really interested in, you know, what happens if this particular blockchain technology that's best exemplified by Bitcoin, which is the dominant, currently dominant cryptocurrency, what if that was adopted in a much more broader sense and it was really a replacement for all cashless transactions? We're not really saying that we're predicting what exactly is going to happen with Bitcoin, but we wanted to play out the scenario that what if it gets adopted like other broadly adopted technologies? And from a set of 40 of these different broadly adopted technologies, we looked at constructing a model and how long does it take to basically saturate for these technologies among the populace and use that that median model as just a, a potential model for the adoption of Bitcoin for all cashless transactions. That's where we got these results. You estimated that in 2017 alone, the creation and use of Bitcoin was responsible for 69 million metric tons of CO2. I was hoping that you could put that into some context for us. Probably the best context for you is there's a fairly popular website called the Digiconomist. And this website has created something called a Bitcoin Energy Consumption Index. They've ranked it basically within a list of countries' CO2 emissions and what their energy consumption is. Currently, Bitcoin is about the, the 40th most consuming country in the world in terms of energy. And that relates then to, to CO2 emissions. I at least, I, th I don't really think about Bitcoin in my day-to-day -day life. It's kind of flying under the radar, but this is actually something that we should all be focusing on, right? I think science in general, uh, we're often asked to try and forecast what may be important things to deal with. And I feel like uh, our, at least our team, when we were thinking about this question, we really considered this potential contribution from cryptocurrencies towards the global greenhouse gas emissions accounting as an area that needed to have, uh, you know, more, more attention. Mm -hmm. And then, so you found that Bitcoin alone could produce enough CO2 to warm the planet to this two degrees Celsius number that a lot of researchers say would be catastrophic and irreversible for our planet. That's not even including the biggest polluters that we often hear about of cars and factories and cattle. Bitcoin alone is capable of doing that. And that's pretty frightening, right? It was extremely shocking for us. We, we had expected that there would be some impact, but the, the magnitude of the impact was, was definitely a surprise for all of us. And again, just to clarify, what we're modeling here is a, is a true what-if scenario. 
we're moving beyond kind of the current way that Bitcoin is utilized as, as primarily a, an investment and a mining operation to, to something that would replace potentially credit cards, debit cards. And if it was to follow this, this broadly adopted technology path, it could potentially have this sort of an impact. But really, our project is to shine a light on the fact that it is power-hungry, it's electricity-intensive, and there's going to be a, a high relative associated emissions from any of these activities for mining cryptocurrency, unless operations are focused in areas where they're generated by renewable energy or their efficiency of their hardware is, is much higher than it currently is. Do you think or do you know if Bitcoin users are aware of the carbon consequences of the currency choices that they are making? I think after our paper, they're maybe a bit more aware. I know the, the DigiEconomist website was sort of a, a, a leader in, in this idea. But um, to give you an example, uh, the day that our, our paper came out, the um, uh, Bitcoin price index dropped 2%. So I would, I would say that probably reflects that the community that's aware of Bitcoin was aware of the news that, that came out associated with the paper. It dropped 2% the day your yeah. paper came out? Correct. Yeah. Okay. So that leads me to think that perhaps um, you could be having some policy impact with this research. Do you know if policymakers have this on their radar? We have been contacted by um, policymakers. We don't know if there's anything moving forward at this point. Um, but, but again, the purpose of the paper is to bring awareness. It's not necessarily to stimulate stimulate regulatory action. It's it's just to explore. You know, here is a new estimate of what this year what this year uh, emissions are, and then if the use of cryptocurrencies was to follow uh, cashless transactions, basically take over cashless transactions, its impact could be quite large. And so just bringing awareness to that fact. We're not saying cryptocurrencies are bad by any stretch of, of the imagination. What we're saying is if we are to more broadly adopt the utilization of cryptocurrencies, one, there needs to be awareness of the high electricity demand from them. And if that electricity is generated in a non-renewable sense, there's going to be a high emissions load. So basically having awareness of that alone and then trying to come up with basically a, an approach that utilizes renewable energy becomes more efficient. And, you know, our hope is that I think it's going to be not necessarily regulatory-led, but, but sort of industry-led that, that these sort of things will be, will be pursued more in the future. That's Eric Franklin, whose recent study in Nature Climate Change offers a startling view of the climate consequences of Bitcoin mining. Eric, can I introduce you to our first guest? Yes, you may. All right. Well, then, Eric Franklin, I am pleased to introduce you to anthropological archaeologist Shannon Tushingham. And Shannon, this is quantitative ecologist Eric Franklin. Great to meet you, Eric. Hi, Shannon. Good to meet you, too. So, Eric, you are listening in to my conversation with Shannon about the history of tobacco. What did I miss? Was there any burning question that you had for Shannon? What stood out to me, I think, was the idea of tobacco, not necessarily as a currency, but as a mechanism of barter. It sounds like the technology that Shannon's using might be a really interesting way to look into linkages between different tribes that may share the same tobacco as a way to sort of look at, well, maybe this is a way to, to elucidate trading patterns. And is that something that's that's been thought of? Yeah, we, we, we're sort of 
thinking a lot about how um, people got tobacco up in, especially in these areas in the Northwest. And this is like the Northwesternmost biomolecular evidence of tobacco. So how did this plant get all the way up north? Trade is one of those possibilities um, or just sort of uh, hand-to-hand conveyance. One of the places where we're going next is trying to figure out, can we determine what tobacco species people were smoking? And then we could get to some of these more interesting questions like you're suggesting. So looking at these relationships of uh, different plants and people and that sort of thing. And that's actually quite complicated, but we're almost there. Right now, the technology can basically tell us that nicotine and and other biomarkers that are specific to tobacco are present in these pipes, while others are not. We need to sort of develop more technology to say, well, these pipes were associated with Nicotiana quadrivalvis versus these other pipes were associated with Nicotiana tobaccum, for example. And then we can get to some of those more interesting questions. Shannon, would you say you were as stunned by the potential climate impact of Bitcoin as Matthew and I were? And and what else would you like to know from Eric about that? It's a very cool study, and I was totally stunned. I, I And I don't really know much about Bitcoin. I mean, I've heard about, like, the dark web and that sort of thing. To be honest, I really don't know much about it. So this was really cool I and very scary, actually. I, I just don't really have a great understanding of who regulates Bitcoin. I mean, is that... Is Bitcoin like a a single entity, or is it, is it a public regulation, or how does that work? Yeah, that's a good question. So it's it's actually was created by an anonymous group of programmers. So we there isn't actually knowledge of who made Bitcoin, um, and in terms of regulatory bodies, there isn't a regulatory body beyond sort of the the initial rules that were set out when when Bitcoin was created. And one of the attractive things about it, right, is the the proof-of-work process provides uh, ultimate transparency for transactions and and the movement of the currency. And so that's why I think there's great interest in future use for this sort of approach, because you can essentially track and understand any uh, transactions. And you can imagine just from a anti-criminal activity approach or from a taxation approach, how that would be an attractive thing for, for government agencies. There's definitely a lot of interest in seeing the further development of cryptocurrency. And it's in this place where at the end of last year, Bitcoin in particular, the value of it uh, grew tremendously. While that rise went up, it really was this idea that, okay, here is a true currency alternative to hard currency. It was just right at that time, right after that that run-up that we said, oh, this this could be something that's that's legitimate. Part of the study was just trying to get a handle on if it is legitimate, if it becomes something that, you know, you walk into Starbucks and buy a coffee with Bitcoin, what would the world look like? That's really fascinating. I've been wondering, is there sort of a difference between like me swiping my credit card, like the energy use of that, kind of computing the energy use of physical currency? Economist uh, website does have some statistics on comparing the difference in a single Bitcoin transaction and 100,000 Visa transactions. The Bitcoin is several thousand times more energy intensive for a single transaction versus 100,000 transactions. So it's it's a quite uh, dramatic difference in terms of what our current monetary cashless transaction system is. You both seem to have a knack for asking questions that no one has thought to ask before. Where do you think that that comes from? 
I mean, just kind of stepping back from our studies a little bit, because you sort of say, well, Bitcoin and then like, you know, archaeological use of tobacco. When I first saw the article, I was like, how are we going to connect these things? (laughs) But I mean, I see you thinking about, you know, really innovative ways of looking at human climate interactions, um, big ideas, modeling, and that's a, there's a big movement in archaeology to do that as well. And, and, and what you see is, Today, people are, you know, we're, we're really, as archaeologists, we're really pushing people to look at climate models and human interactions, um, look at the past, and, and sort of learn from these real long-term historical records, and you can project a lot of interesting things in the future. Now, they didn't have cryptocurrency in the past. I think there's some sort of big idea, interesting questions that are going on in Eric's scholarship as well as a lot of what's going on in archaeology. So he's sort of modeling things going forward, and we model things going back and also try to speak to what's going forward. That's the biggest connection I see is sort of in this sort of, you know, large-scale interactions that we're trying to think about in, in new ways. My, I'm innately curious. I think that, that drives a lot of the questions that I pursue. I work primarily in tropical coral reef ecosystems, which are a, a, a bellwether for climate change. We're seeing climate change on a daily basis. That's sort of the local or regional scale aspect of my sciences are asking questions about the dynamics of climate effects on reef systems. But while I'm seeing that, I'm, I'm also cognizant of the fact that there are these global drivers that are influencing the dynamics in these local systems. And so another part of my research are asking these big questions and being involved in these groups that try and get a better handle on what's driving the dynamics of climate change. What are the influences? Can we create science that helps to potentially provide solutions or anticipate what problems may occur? Well, unfortunately, we are just about out of time. Eric Franklin, thank you for joining us on Undisciplined. Thanks, Alyssa. I really enjoyed it. And Shannon Tushingham, thank you so much. Thank you. This was really fun. Thanks. If you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at So Undisciplined. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is me, Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. Matthew LaPlante will be back next week. Thanks for listening, and please go have big ideas.